0: Welcome to History Repeated, the podcast that reviews what you may have forgotten or perhaps did not have enough of an interest to learn at the time. I am Jimmy LaSalle, and I am here with history expert Gene Anzanakis, and we're going to jump right in. We're going to get right into the Articles of Confederation, why they failed, what was the straw that broke the camel's back to bridge us to the Constitution.
1: So when people talk about government and politics, and specifically the Constitution, They talk about it in the sense of this boring topic that's going to put you to sleep. But what people don't really get about the Constitution is that it's really a beautiful document. And the reason why it's such a beautiful document is that it's a living document. And why we call it a living document is the simple fact that it can be changed. The framers of the Constitution by no means were perfect, but what they did know Is that they didn't know everything and so they provided a way for the constitution to be changed but not to be changed easily or at the whim of the people which i think is really important and what people don't often know is that the constitution was not this country's first government our first attempt at democracy and self-government failed but we call it a beautiful failure at the very least it was an attempt at self government. It was an attempt at a democracy and for the time was completely different to every other government on earth. And so our first government was something called the Articles of Confederation. And you have to understand why the founding fathers did what they did. You know, when the colonies win their independence in 1783, the question is well, how do we govern? How do we self govern? And their only relationship with a strong central government was one that oppressed them. So they wanted to kind of limit that strong central government for fear of being oppressed, for fear of those newly granted rights and freedoms being trampled on. So the Articles of Confederation had a weak central government with the bulk of the power lying in the states. And just that word confederation, it makes sense. If you kind of travel ahead in time, you think about the southern states, they call themselves the Confederacy. They didn't want that strong central government. They said, hey, that kind of limited our rights. Let's have a confederacy, this group of states kind of working together for a common purpose. But at the end of the day, we all have our autonomy. But for the Articles of Confederation, they're written in 1777, but they're not improved or passed until 1781. And as a result of these articles, they had such a uh, strong state governments, but weak central governments. There was a lot of interstate conflict each state was taxing each other trying to trade there was no executive branch to kind of limit those issues or to enforce the laws but probably the biggest problem was that they could only request taxes they couldn't demand them you know the equivalent would be you going to the store purchasing some items you go to check out and they on them up and they tell you this is your total uh would you like to pay how many people would actually pay. He would say, thank you very much. I'm taking my things and I'm leaving. And that's what a lot of states did. They did not pay their taxes. They could only request it. So we say that they lacked the power of the purse. Uh, But one particular event was something called Shays' Rebellion. And it was a rebellion over taxes and trade. And because there was no standing army, they couldn't put it down. And so it became obvious, hey, we have to change these articles. But that was impossible because 13 out of 13 states had to approve. You know, that's impossible. Think about when you want to go out to dinner with a group of friends. There's 13 of you. Are you all going to agree on a restaurant? Is somebody going to be a little miffed because they didn't get what they want? Of course. And so that's what the colonies uh, were facing. And so ultimately they decided we need to just get rid of these and start from scratch. And that's where the Constitution kind of comes into play.
0: So what kind of a problem did they give you um, or give them when they were looking to, to change it? Like, did they just get to a point where we're not doing this we got to do something else or what happened how did they how did they get to that
1: well they basically kind of locked themselves in the room and didn't tell anybody what they were doing you know thankfully you know James Madison we call him you know the father of the constitution he took impeccable notes and a lot of what we know is from those notes and it became abundantly clear you know we we ourselves we need to take care of business and we need to just throw these out because 13 out of 13 states had to approve to amend the articles a simple law, you had to get nine out of 13, more than a simple majority, it was impossible. And so what they decided to do was to create a series of compromises in order to get the job done. And so you get a little bit of what you want, you get a little bit of what you want, and at the end of the day, we can achieve our goal. But the problem with compromise is that you can only compromise so much. At the end, you're going to have to deal with those issues head on. And a lot of those issues that the founding fathers didn't want to deal with head on or probably couldn't deal with head on in order to get people to agree and sign their names to this paper, things like slavery, for example, all of those issues will eventually come to head later on. But, you know, we'll talk about those in, in, in later podcasts. So what they ultimately decided on was, let's use a federal system. So federalism is the sharing of power between your federal, national, central government, all of those terms are interchangeable, and the state governments. However, and this is a big however, even though power is shared, it is not shared equally. When push comes to shove, it is the federal government that reigns supreme. And there's something in the Constitution called the Supremacy Clause, which basically states that no state can pass any law that goes against a federal law. So when push comes to shove, we're in charge. You have your rights, you have your powers, you can do your own thing to an extent, but when we say this is it, that's it.
0: So interesting, in in today's day and age, you have the legalization of, let's say, marijuana going state to state, but it's still not federally approved, right?
1: So that's the federal government choosing not to put its foot down on that. So if the federal government went to states like Colorado, for example, and says, hey, in the United States of America, this is not legal. You can't do this. It would lead to a series of lawsuits. Other states, neighboring states, have brought forth lawsuits against those states who have the legalization of marijuana, saying that's creating crime or it's creating problems. But the federal government itself has not stepped in. They can. They have the right to. But they haven't. So the Articles of Confederation were pretty toothless. Um, they There was a lot of weaknesses. They lacked the power of the purse. Um, they had no executive branch to enforce the law. There was no standing army. You had these kind of local militias. And so Shays' Rebellion was basically a year-long rebellion in Western Massachusetts. You have farmers who are pretty infuriated. They are large in number, it's about four thousand farmers who their their goal is to kind of um seize this federal armory, so they have these weapons now to arm themselves, because they're furious. They're angry about the taxes. They're angry over these debt collectors who are basically seizing their farms if they can't make their payments. And it's embarrassing. You your government cannot put this rebellion of angry farmers down. And so this particular event is what actually motivated George Washington to leave his private life and re-enter the game of politics, ultimately, you know, eventually leading him to become the first president of the United States when the articles are thrown out and the Constitution is created. And so we we call Shays' Rebellion that deciding factor as to why the articles couldn't just be changed, they had to go.
0: All right, so now we're at the point where, you know, they realize this first go-through isn't isn't going the way they wanted it to. No centralized government in order to enforce the laws. A lot of infighting with the states. Did they try to at least amend this? And then what made them do the complete reset?
1: They did attempt to amend it, but the way they had written the articles, it became impossible. You know, like we discussed earlier, 13 out of 13 states had to approve And so ultimately, what they decide to do is just to start from scratch. And if you look at the very beginning of the Constitution, we call that the preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, two very important things you have to discuss. The first is in order to form a more perfect union. They're recognizing the fact, hey, we tried. We didn't do such a great job. We recognize where we went wrong, and now we're going to write it. We're going to make a more perfect union. But probably the most important part of the preamble are the first three words we, the people. The power to govern derives from the people. A government can only continue to exist with the consent of the governed. So don't forget the power to rule comes from us.
0: Okay so what were the first the first steps that they took now what what the biggest mistake that they made the last time was not a central government but now you can't just have an all powerful government because this is what you you were just you were just in England and you had exactly. a king so now you don't want to have Exactly. A, so you know. basically
1: they they take a series of steps to limit the capability of this newly created strong central government to oppress them. So they they look at Enlightenment thinkers, and they take a lot of those ideas and they throw it into the Constitution. So the states are in agreement that there needs to be a strong central government. But they want to limit how much that strong central government can oppress them. And so they create a series of checks and balances. But in addition to that, they separate the power of the federal government into three different branches. So you have the executive branch, which is basically the president, you have the legislative branch, which is Congress, and you have the judicial branch, which is the Supreme Court. And each of those three branches has a way of checking the power of the other branch. And that's pretty ingenious. You know, people have a very basic understanding of what those three branches of government are and how they function so the executive branch is the office of the president vice president the various federal departments and agencies that the president appoints the legislative branch the most basic function that they have is to write the laws but there is so much more to the legislative branch you know when i was a full-time teacher one of the lessons that i did on the legislative branch is that i would you know give the students uh, a list of all the roles of the legislative branch and i would divide the kids into groups And they would have to dissect that form and come up with three of those powers that made the legislative branch so strong or the strongest branch. And ultimately, the right to declare war was always there. But without fail, almost every group would not have the power to impeach. So it was always so interesting what they would leave in and what they would leave out. And so there's a lot that people don't really understand about the legislative branch, the legislative branch yet again an example of constitutional compromise you have the smaller states that want equal representation and you have larger states who are saying hey this doesn't make any sense i'm larger i have more people i should have more votes and so what the framers of the constitution decided on was a bicameral or a two-house legislature one house to appease two types of states so we have the house of representatives is based on each state's population the larger the state the more people they have there are certain qualifications you have to be 25 years old you have to be a citizen for seven years you have to live in the state that you represent but you're responsible for a smaller geographic area you're more inclined to be in touch with the pulse of the people which you represent you are elected every two years So you have to care a little bit more about what the people want because you're up for re-election. The entire House of Representatives uh, is up for re-election at the same time. And what's important to understand is that bills that will increase taxes must begin in this branch. Um, They select the president if there is no clear winner in the electoral college. And like we've discussed recently, they will call for impeachment. You know, we're, we're in the midst of that now with President oh, Trump. We'll
0: get into impeachment in a little bit.
1: Oh, for, for sure. <laughs> we're going to have a co- podcast on that.
0: Um,
1: and then we have the Senate. The Senate is equal representation, two senators per state. And there are some different qualifications. You have to be 30 years old. You have to be a citizen for nine years. And again, live in the state that you represent. They represent the entire state. So they have to take into account all of the different areas of that particular state. They have six-year terms. And they have staggered terms, which means that one third of the Senate is up for re-election every two years. And this is a way to make sure you always have seasoned or experienced senators in the legislative body, which is really important. Public opinion tends to matter less. You have longer terms. You're not up for re-election for every six years. Um, they deal with matters that are more of a national level. They can approve foreign treaties, approve presidential appoint- appointments like judges and of course like we're looking at recently the senate tries the official during the impeachment proceedings but what both houses have to do is they must approve a bill before it becomes a law and the powers of the legislative branch are pretty numerous they have that power of the purse they can coin money they must approve the federal budget that's proposed by the president another example of checks and balances they regulate trade amongst the states. That was one of the biggest problems with the Articles of Confederation. You know, Massachusetts wanted to trade with New York. They were taxing as if, you know, it's crossing state borders. The federal government handles that. Uh, military drafts, the right to declare war. The president can ask the legislative branch to declare war, but the president himself or maybe herself someday uh, cannot declare war. They must approve members of the president's cabinet. They approve treaties. They call for impeachment proceedings. They can override a presidential veto. They don't necessarily need the president's signature uh, for a bill to become a law. But there's also something called the implied powers. And this is something in the Constitution called the elastic clause. The, The elastic clause allows the federal government to kind of stretch its powers. So if it's not exactly written in the constitution they can do it we can kind of point to the elastic clause like hey we need to do this because it's necessary and proper that we do this an example of the elastic clause of being used would be the creation of the national bank uh the creation of departments of education it's hey you don't have the right to create the bank it's not listed in the constitution but we're going to look to the elastic clause you know thomas jefferson for example was was what we call a strict constructionist if you are not specifically there in the constitution you don't have the right to do it but then there are people who are not so strict constructionists and saying hey it might might not be specifically listed but we can use that elastic clause we're going to stretch the power of the federal government and have the right to do those things but probably the least talked about of the legislative branch are those committees that's where the power lies so if you go to senate.gov you can look up all the different committees that exist in the legislative branch and who is on those committees, who is the chairman of those committees. You can look at when they're meeting, you can watch it on C-SPAN and you have these groups like the Judiciary Committee, the Commerce and Trade Committee and, and these committees have actually been in the news with Donald Trump's impeachment. It's the Judiciary Committee that kind of put together those articles and so that's where the power lies. So the judicial branch You know, the Supreme Court, very little was mapped out by the framers of the Constitution. And there wasn't even a number as to how many people should be on the Supreme Court when it was created. And so ultimately, there was five at first. And the the function of the judicial branch was to interpret the laws. The Supreme Court is the highest court in the land. Once the Supreme Court decides something, that's it. There's nowhere else for a case to go. That's it. They're the final say, the Judiciary Act of 1789 basically created the Supreme Court. And today, there are nine justices, but the number of justices on the Supreme Court has changed um, over time. In 1863, for example, the number of justices on the Supreme Court went up to as high as 10. Um, in 1866, they passed an act which would decrease the number of justices to seven, for fear that andrew johnson would get to appoint people to the supreme court you know when lincoln chose andrew johnson to be his running mate for his second term as president he had no way of knowing that he was going to be assassinated and the republicans who approved it, you know johnson was the only southern democrat to stay with the union so it was like an olive branch they they kept johnson on the ticket well they not kept him they put him on the ticket but now Lincoln is dead, and now they have a Southern Democrat as president of the United States post-Civil War. So they were saying, hey, we want to limit what this guy can do. Another reason why they impeached him, he was also found not guilty of impeachment. Um, But basically, when somebody resigned or died, they just didn't replace them. And the goal was to get the number down to seven. That actually never happened. The number got as low as eight. And ultimately, in 1869, they decided, hey, nine justices, this is what we want. One chief justice, eight associate justices, and that's the way it's been. Presidents have looked to increase it. You know, in the 1930s, FDR hoped to pack the court with as high as 15 justices in the hopes that they would, you know, find his New Deal constitutional. Uh, But that, of course, did not happen. The judicial branch gives themselves their power. The case itself is not important, but what the Supreme Court establishes in that case is something called judicial review. And it gives the judicial branch the right to declare something constitutional or unconstitutional. You know, you think about a football game. You have two teams, but probably the least talked about sometimes is the referee. But the referee can have the greatest impact on the game, and that's what the judicial branch acts like, the referee. Some a call is good, a call is bad, this can happen, that can't happen. And so that's what the judicial branch does. They have judicial review. Only the Supreme Court can overturn previous Supreme Court case rulings. An example of this would be in 1886, Plessy versus Ferguson, which established segregation. You can have separate but equal. And of course, in 1954, you have Brown versus the Board of Education, which overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. So the only thing that can negate a previous Supreme Court ruling is another Supreme Court ruling.
0: Okay, great. So I have two questions. So, one, why was it so worrisome for Johnson to appoint someone to the Supreme Court? And then also to tie this all together, was there a moment like Shay's rebellion where this new form of government was
1: tested? Sure. So it's a big deal for any president to have the opportunity to appoint somebody to the Supreme Court. Unlike the executive branch or the legislative branch, your term is for life in the judicial branch. So once you are appointed, once you are approved by the Senate, you have your seat on the Supreme Court until you die or until you choose to retire. Now, like presidents or really all elected officials, Supreme Court justices can be impeached. So it's important to understand that, you know, you can be removed from office, but there is a process. You're not being elected by the people. And so typically a president will appoint somebody to the Supreme Court who holds the same political ideology. So if you are a, you know, a conservative president, you're going to appoint a conservative justice. If you are more of a liberal president, you're going to appoint a more liberal justice. So your political ideology is going to kind of stand the test of time on the Supreme Court. The second question that you posed, yes, the answer to your question is yes, there was that defining moment. Like Shay's rebellion, we are seeing yet another rebellion of farmers. And in this time, it was the Whiskey Rebellion of 1791. The difference was they were able to put it down you know they had an executive branch to enforce the law yet again you're seeing farmers being angry over taxes and now the federal government sends troops now shays rebellion was that event that kind of coax george washington out of his private life now he's the president of the united states he hears there's yet another rebellion and he tells people saddle up my horse, we're going, we're putting down this rebellion. I mean, just imagine the idea of the President of the United States hearing the the very same thing that ultimately ended the first government is now happening again. And he looks, I would imagine he looks at the people in his office and says, oh, hell no, get me my horse. (laughs) And he jumps on his horse, they ride down there, and by the time they got there, the rebellion was over. You know, I imagine... You know, In my own theory of this, I like to imagine those farmers going, sorry,
0: (laughs) we're good, taxes are in the mail. All right, Jeannie, thank you so much for explaining that part to us. Um, We have a good understanding of how we kind of got to the Constitution, the separation of powers, which I guess we can get into more detail on that too, but the future podcast. Next time we're going to talk about the executive branch. We kind of broke down the legislative and the judicial branches today a little bit more, but we're going to find out if it's it's, uh, how it is to be the boss. And if it's good to be the boss, and if the boss is always right, join us soon.